Um, Let's get started. If you'll open to Luke chapter 18, let me ask you this. I hope if you've learned one thing from our time in the parables, is what are the parables actually talking about? And what are the parables actually talking about? Who knows? Kingdom of God. Now, what we've said each week is that the parables are highly misunderstood because we assume that they are housed in these nice little stories to make anybody be able to understand and grasp what Jesus is saying. That's not how Jesus describes them. That's how we've described them. The way Jesus describes them is, is that I speak in parables so that those with eyes to hear or eyes to see and ears to hear will understand what I'm teaching about the kingdom of God. But those who do not will not understand what I am trying to teach you. So that's why we are calling the parables the secret teachings of Jesus because there's a lot that you can gather as low-lying fruit. You know, low-lying fruit, you know what that means? I sometimes use phrases, not everybody knows what that means. If you're out and you see a fruit tree or something and you're, you know, it's a huge tree, there's low-lying, easy to get fruit. Some of that may be on the ground, something you can just reach up and grab. Sometimes the best stuff, you got to climb up the tree and you got to find it yourself. You got to go after it. The low-lying fruit is the stuff that's easy to grasp, easy to take in, not necessarily what Jesus was ultimately trying to communicate. And today, I appreciate the uh, the worship today. I was gazing at... Josh's new guitar, and I'm a little jealous. I may grab that on my way out. I don't think he would miss it. And uh, also, just incredible music. I was not expecting David to sing. Uh, great job. Proud of him. And I appreciate what um, Tracy shared with us. This has been a trying week, especially if you have been watching the news, or if you are a person who is hurting, or especially if you are a survivor of sexual assault. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that, but. Um, this sermon is very much for you if, if you fall into the category of someone who hurts and wonders, is Jesus here? Is he at work? Is he answering my prayer? So Luke chapter 18, verses 1, we're going to start. It's called, depending on your version, the parable of the persistent widow. Some of your versions will call it the parable of the unjust judge. You can go by either one. doesn't really matter. Uh, this is a very unique parable. I'll tell you why when we get into it. But I think it has a lot to say to us, has a lot to say to me, and hope it has a lot to say to you. Let's begin with Luke chapter 18, begin with verse 1. You can follow along on you version, by the way. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat, she will not paint me down by her continual coming. Nobody elbow your spouse at this point, right? And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, when we read this, there's certainly some low-lying fruit that just means if you will badger somebody to death, they will eventually give in, right? Amen. Let's pray. Let's go home, right? That's the low-lying fruit. God's saying, if you will badger me long enough, I will eventually give you what you want, right? No, that is not what he's saying. In fact, if we're going to understand this parable, we first have to look at the context in which the parable is given. There's a specific word that you need to see that's in verse 8. It says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily, nevertheless. Now, there are certain key words in Scripture that say, if you have only read the preceding verses, you're going to miss the point. Those words are, therefore... Or for, or nevertheless. When we look at those words, they tell us in a big red flag, stop, I'm referencing something else. You need to go find what else I'm referencing if you're going to understand the verses or the uh, words that I've just spoken. When we see the word nevertheless, I want you to always do this, read what came just before it. All right? Now, if we back up, some of you are thinking, well, I mean, this is verse 1. There's nothing before it. Well, understand, Jesus did not 
teaching chapters and verses. We added those later as ways for us to reference the material for Jesus. This is an ongoing conversation that he's having with, which is common in the parables, with some Pharisees. So if we're going to understand the, the parable of the persistent widow or the parable of the unjust judge, we've got to back up and see, well, what is the context in which he tells this parable? If we jump back to Luke chapter 17, verse 20, this is the scenario in which Jesus is using this parable. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So what he's literally talking about is the coming of the kingdom of God. Now we're going to look at the next few verses as well, but what he's, what he's saying here is what they're expecting In this moment, if you remember the history of what's going on politically in this area, what's politically happening in Jerusalem, they are no longer a self-governing nation. Who is in charge at this point? Does anybody remember? Somebody said it. Rome. So at this point, Rome has taken over. Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, has become a puppet nation for Rome. And the people are very unhappy. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, what we see is prophecy and the proclaiming that a Messiah is going to come and rescue the nation of Israel permanently. And what they're expecting is that the nation of Israel is going to end up being on this top-tier political spectrum where they are the world power in the world, and the Messiah is going to sit on the throne, overthrow all of their enemies, and put them back on the path that they had thought they were going to be on when they entered into the promised land. We have found perfection in the way that we live, and we are going to be on top, and we are never going to be hurt or upset. We're never going to be enslaved. We're never going to be conquered. We are going to have everything at our fingertips. And so the Pharisees and many of the Jews at this time, oh, there we go. And many of the Jews at this time, what they were literally looking for is a political leader to come in and take over. And what the Pharisees are asking is, when is the kingdom of God, i.e. the nation of Israel as a world power in the world, when is this going to happen? Now, if that was your, was your understanding of the Messiah, then you're going to expect, you know, I don't know, a military parade, right? You're going to expect somebody to come in and there's going to be this massive following. You're going to expect some kind of a parade that whenever they enter into the city, they're going to cast out all of your enemies and all of a sudden life is just going to be great and it's going to be perfect in what you always hoped. But what Jesus responds to is, he knows this is what they're asking. And he says, you will not even know when the kingdom of God comes. And they didn't. The only people that really knew when the kingdom of God entered into the world were some shepherds, Mary and Joseph, some barn animals, supposedly, some magi. They're the only ones who really acknowledged that this was the kingdom of God. King Herod saw him as a threat and sent out to have him killed, not because he believed he was the Messiah, but believed he somehow still threatened his political power. And Jesus is saying, whenever the kingdom of God enters, no one's even going to know. And then what Jesus says is, because it's here right now. Now, some of you are experts in end-time theology. I don't know who you are. Maybe you are. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe none of you are interested in end-time theology. I'm not an expert in it. I am of the theology that God's going to work this out the way he wants to work it out, right? Amen. Next, yeah, move on. God's going to end this thing how it is. But often when we talk about the coming of the kingdom of God, we still misunderstand because we still think the kingdom of God is the second coming of Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 it's, it's not that when this is all over and heaven is instituted, there's a new heaven and a new earth. No, the kingdom of God is here right now. You don't know it because you haven't been looking for it. 
This is the context that the parable is coming in. This is why Jesus uses this parable. Is He's talking about what happens when the kingdom of God comes. Because remember, parables are about the kingdom of God. It's not about just how we live our daily lives, although there is plenty of application for that. The parables are about this deeper teaching of the kingdom that is living and existing in parallel with the world around us in which we are called to come out of that world and live in his kingdom. And yet at the same time, we're still in that world. This is the great struggle that we have today in our lives is how do we follow Jesus and live in this world when this world, if we're going to live in it, does not reward following Jesus. So Jesus goes on. That's not the only thing Jesus says, but he he says literally the kingdom of God is already here. So if you're here today and you've come up in different teaching and you're thinking, you know, the kingdom of God will come, I just have to hang on until that happens. Understand, Jesus says, it's here right now. You can live in this right now. The kingdom was already here. We go on in verse 22, and he said to his disciples, which is important, because that was for the Pharisees. And then he turns away from the Pharisees. And he talks to his disciples because what he says next is just for those who know and follow Jesus. And he says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. What he's saying and what he's talking about is that second coming. The first coming no one noticed. I mean, you really had to be aware. God had to really show you something if you were going to see that the kingdom of God was here. And even the disciples often missed it. But what he says is, there's going to come a day when you're looking for me. We are in that day right now. You're looking for me. You're looking at the injustice in the world. You're looking at all the hate and evil and all the things that we are doing to treat each other so terribly. You're going to call out and say, Jesus, when are you coming back? And some people are going to begin saying, hey, he's here. He's already here. And Jesus says, don't listen. That's why whenever somebody comes out and says, I have a prophecy for that Jesus is going to return on such and such a date. You never believe it. Never believe it. There any prophet, in the Old Testament, any prophet who claimed to speak for God and was wrong, do you know what the penalty was? Death. Death. You're supposed to die. You claim to speak for God, but you're not? Then that, that was a capital offense. You were gone. You were dead. You were done. That's why many of the prophets were killed. And so as we look at what he's saying, he's saying, whenever I come back, you will not need somebody to have a podcast or a good website or somebody that's got a, a, you know, a great YouTube channel or somebody that can write a book that sells millions of copies. Because when I come back, it will be like the lightning flashing across the sky. Everybody will know when I'm coming back. Everybody will know. Again, this is the context in which Jesus is giving the parable of the persistent widow, Okay. This is how we get that deeper level of understanding of what Jesus is trying to teach. The second coming of Christ, the first coming, was not seen by hardly anyone. The second coming will be seen by everyone. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah. And this is, uh, this is crucial. This is one of the crucial parts of understanding the parable. I want you to, to pay attention to this. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now this is interesting. Because we have two cataclysmic episodes in biblical history that he's referencing. The time of Noah, where you have Noah preparing, being ridiculed for preparing, the coming judgment of God. And when the coming judgment of God comes, everybody else is just going about their daily lives, about their daily business. Not even in preparation for the fact that he may be coming in judgment. We know the story of Noah. I would guess every one of us in here heard it at some point or the other. Then he references Sodom, and interestingly, he doesn't reference any of the reasons why Sodom was destroyed, but what he does reference is 
People were eating, drinking, building, planning, going about their daily business, not preparing for the time when Jesus is going to return. And he says it'll be just like that when Jesus comes back as a lightning flashes across the sky. Now you're already wondering, how in the world does this have anything to do with the parable? Right? One of the main questions, what Jesus is referencing, what he's asking in this passage, and then leads into the next, is what will Jesus find in us when he returns? What's he going to see in us when he returns? You know, one of the ways that we tend to live our lives... Whenever we're expecting something and it takes an inordinate amount of time to come is we give up on the thing we're expecting. No matter what it is. You get excited, you feel like God's calling you into a new career, you go do all the prep stuff to get the new career and you're ready and you're waiting and you're certain God's going to provide you a new career and it doesn't happen and you send resume after resume after resume and you do interview after interview after interview and the job never comes and then you get discouraged. What's it going to happen? Young families want to have kids. Something happens. They're not able to have kids. They pray and pray and pray. They ask and ask and ask. They try and try and try. Nothing ever happens. Eventually get discouraged. Eventually give up. Whenever we look for Jesus, whenever we're hoping he's coming back, we see the injustice in the world, the hate, the evil, the pain that is caused just by each other. Jesus, when are you coming back? The temptation is to go about our daily lives and just give up. We're going to eat, we're going to drink, we're going to work, we're going to plan, we're going to build. But what Jesus is saying is, where is your heart when I return? Because no one knows when that could be. It could be before the end of this service today. It could be sometime a thousand years from now. Who knows? Jesus knows. I mean, Jesus actually doesn't know. Jesus actually literally says, I don't even know when I'm coming back. Only the Father knows. And whenever he says it's time to come, that's when I'm going to come. What's he going to find when he returns? Will we be passionately following? Will Will we be obeying Jesus? Or will we be just living our individual lives, the things that we've decided are important to us and decide what we want out of this life? Is that how we're going to live? Is that what Jesus is going to find? As we go on, and we read this and we see what Jesus is talking about, which interestingly, even in the sin of Sodom, do you, do you know why Sodom was destroyed? Well, it was because of homosexuality, right? I mean, that's what we've heard for years. But do you know what Scripture really says? Scripture says that Sodom was destroyed because the people that knew God failed to care for the poor and the sick and the oppressed. Go back and read it. They were judged not because of whatever lifestyle that we have said. That's why he judged. He judged them because those who knew God did not fulfill their purpose in this world. And they were judged. See, when you really get into Scripture, it is not what you thought it was. When you get into the words of Jesus, it is not what you thought it was. This meek, mild shepherd who just walks around and says, Oh, I just love you so much. Certainly he said that. But he also turned over tables. He also fashioned a whip to run people out of the temple. He also said this, Where will you be when I return? See, Jesus, he got right to the point. He didn't mess around. These secret teachings, when he would turn to his disciples, this was life, this was reality, this was truth, this was the kingdom. You were in the kingdom or you were not in the kingdom. There was no middle road. That's why we have some really hard passages to go through, like either you're hot or you're cold. If you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Or... You will, many will come to me in that day and they will say, Lord, Lord, look what I did in your name. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. This is one of the hardest teachings of Jesus to say, either you're a part of the kingdom or you're not. And there are people who think they are, but they are not. Now, if you're like me, I'm like, well, then what does that mean? (laughs) I don't know if I am or not. Am I in the kingdom or not? How do I find out? Where's that list? Am I on the list? Am I not on the list? Can I sneak my way in? I'm convinced there are people that live their lives exactly the way Jesus described. 
I'm going to get what I want out of my life. I'm going to live my life the way I want. I'm going to go about my life eating and drinking, building and preparing and doing all these other things. And they think they're going to be able to talk their way into heaven when they stand before God. That's exactly what the group of people who said, did I not cast out demons in your name? And the thing is, is you could talk your way out of a lot of things. But you can't talk your way out of the judgment from an all-knowing God, right? What will Jesus find when he returns? What I think Jesus is trying to show us here and what is lived out today among us is that our faith is more likely to be strangled out by the busyness of our lives than by persecution or by a complete lack of faith. It is indifference that is going to mess most of us up. That's what Jesus is saying. It's our indifference to our faith. It's our indifference to our obedience. It's our indifference to following in the way of Jesus. It's our indifference into following his call that is going to trip most of us up. Most of us will not have any kind of persecution in our life that really causes us to fear for our life or to lose our livelihood. Maybe some of us will. Most of us in this room will not. It is indifference that is going to mess most of us up. And in this indifference, this is where Jesus ushers in the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. Which at first glance you think, "Mm, okay, don't really know how these fit together. The end of Luke 17, right before the parable, it says, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in the night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? Like, where, you know, where are they going to be taken? And where are the people, who are the people going to be left? What's going to happen to them? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there are the vultures We'll gather. Oh, those feel so good. That feels, that's a good feeling passage of scripture, isn't it? You are encouraged and ready to go out and conquer the world. Jesus is saying there's a dividing line. There's a dividing line. What you know to be true is true. That we cannot live for Christ and for ourselves. We can't do it. When Jesus returns, we'll be drawn to our own lives or we'll be drawn towards him. That's what he's talking about. If you're in the field, don't turn back. If you're on the roof of the house, don't go back to get your stuff. Are we going to be drawn to him or are we going to be drawn to our lives, our stuff, what we've built, where our identity is? What are we going to do in that moment? Let's go back to the parable, Luke 18, 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. Does that make more sense now? In the busyness of your lives, you've been a Christian for years. You do the math. There are people in the New Testament, the apostles thought Jesus was going to return before they died. And he hasn't. And you're thinking, what if it's another thousand years? Two thousand years, three thousand years, five thousand years. You know, the truth is, is what are we going to do in that moment and in that time? And what Jesus is saying is, you ought always to pray and not lose heart. So according to Jesus, our response to him should always be two things, faith and constant prayer. Faith and constant prayer. One of the things I love about our prayer group that we're doing now is those that are coming on Wednesday night just to pray. I mean, just to pray. And if you have requests, they'll pray for you. But that's not the only thing they do. If like if no requests come in, they don't go, okay, no reason to meet tonight. I mean, they pray together. I've got some groups of pastors and ministers and different lay leaders that I get together and pray with at different times throughout the month. And I'm going to tell you something. We We don't do a whole lot of theologizing. We just pray together. And that has become for me one of the most valuable moments in my month. And I get to pray with people because 
There is something that brings people together, and there is something that inclines your heart towards God when you're in constant, intentional prayer. And if you're struggling in your faith, I guarantee you do not have a healthy prayer life. It is not possible. Now, you may have a life of telling God what you want him to do. That's not a prayer life. That's a a wish list. But if you're constantly communing with God regularly, over and over and over again, that becomes for you a precious moment. What Jesus is saying is, in those times when you were waiting, from the time when Jesus has to suffer, because he says, before all this happens, I have to suffer, what he's saying is, between now and when I return, that flash of lightning that goes across the sky, everybody sees it, I come in, and then the judgment happens. Pray, and stay steady in your faith. Pray, and stay steady in your faith. Pray, And stay steady in your faith. Verse 2. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, don't get caught up in the fact that this is supposed to be God. As if God is the judge, he really doesn't care. And you got to bug him to death. Regularly, in the parables, God is not portrayed in the best light, right? I mean, he's he's regularly portrayed in ways that don't necessarily make him look good. Like, he's going to return. Like a thief in the night. Is Jesus a thief? (laughs) Is he an unjust judge? In fact, he'll dispute that later on in this parable. For a while he refused, and after he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because of this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice. So she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Listen, I know some of you men are like, this is a sermon for women. I'm going to tell you something. This is highly effective for husbands too. Let me tell you from personal experience. Deidre will also tell you from personal experience. Husbands can nag too. Don't ask her about it. Just take my word for it. All right. Squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? There are so many things in this world that that is true. And yet that is not the way it is with God, though it is the way with this unjust judge. In fact, God says, I am not the unjust judge. He says in verse 7, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Can I ask you something? Is the testimony of your life and your heart that you are crying to God day and night? Everybody raise your hand. I'm kidding. Don't do that. But seriously, how many of us that the testimony of our lives is that we cry to God day or night? And this is what Jesus is saying we are supposed to do. This gives better understanding of what James says when James says, count it a joy when you experience trials of all kinds. Because it causes you to guess what? Cry to God day or night. This is one of the hardest lessons I've had to learn as a follower of Jesus. Because life hasn't exactly gone my way the way I thought it would when I became a Christian. So I believe the gospel, and we've talked about this before. Some of you believe the gospel that said, if you'll just ask Jesus to be your Savior, everything will be okay. Well, that is absolutely true in one sense of the word. But the way that we often interpret that is that we will not have hardship in this world. Now, that, that begins to get us messed up because then when we start having hardship in the world, and yet we believe that because I've asked Jesus to be my Savior, I won't have hardship in the world, then we start saying, well, do I have Jesus? Or, have I offended him? Am I being judged by him? Have I made him angry? And there are some very ill-meaning ministers of the gospel who have pounced on an opportunity to control others and to say, yes, you're suffering because God's upset with you. Now let me tell you how you can get in his good favor again. And that is a lie. Because what scripture says is, of course God's going to make life hard for you. Because he wants you to cry out for him day and night. Because there is something at the end of that life. Jesus literally wants us to pray persistently until he returns. Persistently. I know that's not a word we often use. Persistently, not 
constantly. Constantly just means we're just doing it. Persistently means we're doing it with purpose repeatedly. Are we praying persistently as we wait for him to return? See, it's not just that this is an action that God is going to use as his judging stick. Well, you prayed about five times a day. Uh, Not quite enough. Oh, you prayed like at least 20 hours of the day. You're in, but just barely. (laughs) This is not a measuring stick. This is not an activity that we're just supposed to log the hours and so God's not upset with us and God lets us in heaven. That is not what he's trying to say. See, prayer actually has some very deep meanings for us and has some very uh, incredible gifts whenever we do that. So this is some some of the things that happens when we pray. One thing it does is it reminds us of our treasure because we're constantly going to our treasure when we're crying out to God day and night. It reminds us that he is our treasure. And when we're reminded that he is our treasure, then our thankfulness grows even in the midst of suffering. The second thing is is that it keeps us in his presence because prayer is never meant to be one-sided. Whenever you pray, if it's one-sided, and I mean, it's just... You set aside time to pray and literally, whether it's just in, internally, mentally, or whether it is, you know, verbally, whenever you fill all the time with your prayer and you never have time to listen, you question whether God's ever present in prayer. Because there is something that happens in prayer of being still and quiet. There is something that the Holy Spirit uses in that moment when we are being still and quiet to provoke us, to move in us, to tell us what's on his mind. It keeps us in his presence. A third thing it does is it demonstrates our hearts towards God. Are we in, I love what Tracy said, we come all broken in some way or another. Most of us will fight our entire lives to prove otherwise, but internally, all of us have some brokenness, some fear, some dread, some despair from something that has happened within our lives. And whenever we come before God and we elevate our thoughts, our hearts, and our minds towards him, we recognize I am less than, you are more than. Prayer keeps him in that primary spot. You are the one I come to. You are the one with the answers. You are the one calling, drawing, and leading me somewhere. You are God, not me. The fourth thing, as I already said, it allows God to speak to us. And I just have to say, if you've never experienced God speaking to you, you need to just pray until he does. You need to ask him to speak to you and give him the time to let him speak. What I have found in my own life, I have never been sitting there. I, I won't say this has never happened. I've never had an audible voice, but I have had moments where something became so clear in a moment it startled me. <laughs> like That was God. That was 100% God. But God doesn't speak to us in the way that we speak to each other. I think it would be great if God emailed and bulleted lists. I think that would be awesome. I would love for some of the things I pray for that he's like, uh, no, that's a stupid prayer. I'm totally not going to grant that. Oh, come on, God. I really want a yacht. You know, I could reach a lot of people with a yacht. I love the pastors that are looking for a, you know, multi-million dollar jet so they can be up in heaven with God. I'm like, gosh, if I, <laughs> I'd be scared to death. God would strike it and you would be not down in heaven with God, but somewhere else. You know what I'm saying? But God, if you give me a yacht, I could reach a lot of people. People would want to come on my yacht, and I would tell them about you when they came on my yacht. Now, I'd love to get an email from him and say, Mark, that's a stupid prayer. Just stop. That's an extreme example, but I have other stupid prayers that I do have, and that I constantly ask for. And just like Paul constantly prayed for something and didn't answer that prayer, God could just say, just stop praying it. It's just not going to happen. That doesn't always happen. Instead, what God tends to do is to move our hearts slowly as we commit to him. I found the number one way that God speaks to me is through Scripture. I'll be praying and Scripture will come to mind. I'll be like, of course that's the answer to the prayer. I didn't even need to pray. I knew that. That's one of the ways the Holy Spirit speaks to us is he brings Scripture to our minds, which means if you're not spending time in Scripture, guess what? He doesn't have much to work with for you. It's like Bumblebee, you know, Transformers. How does Bumblebee speak? 
radio. Only thing he can speak in, I think, until like the last movie, which was way too many movies, by the way. But it, it, only phrases that he could take from movie clips or, or songs or something. That was the only way he could speak. That's one of the ways God speaks to us is through his word. Whenever we're praying and he just all of a sudden, whoop, oh yeah. I remember what God said in his word. Prayer answered. Another thing that God does whenever we're praying, is it demonstrates he is the object of our true faith. Not ourselves, not our jobs, not our careers, not our social standing. But he is the object of our true faith. What Jesus is saying is not that you have to pray in order to be acceptable. What Jesus is saying is that persistent prayer is one of the best indicators of a heart following Jesus. And so if you're not a persistent prayer, I'm going to tell you right now, you will not grow in your faith until you become one. You say, well, Mark, that's awful harsh. It's not me. This is Jesus talking. We have to be persistent prayers. I'm going to show you a a clip here, and I want to preface it before you see it. There was a pastor by the name of Dwayne Miller. It's a little bit of a long, it's like four and a half minutes, but trust me, it's worth it. Dwayne Miller was a pastor, and he came down. Oh, hold on, hold on. Hold on. There we go. Hang on. I'll tell you when to start it. Dwayne Miller was a pastor who came down with the flu, and it was a severe case of the flu, and it arrested his vocal cords. He couldn't speak anymore. And eventually they developed some technology. I don't exactly know what the technology was, but he could begin to speak. But well, you heard that. That's what he sounded like. It was a struggle. It was a strain. And he said that for days after he would speak, he would just be in terrible pain. His throat would just be in terrible pain. So it was a, a true gift for him to get a, to speak. It was, a, it was a gift that he was going to have to pay for later. And he was invited to speak. And in this sermon, he is speaking on God's healing, which is incredible because this has gone on for years at this point. He has prayed for healing. God has not healed him. So there's really two messages in what you're going to see here. One, you're going to hear him talk about what happens in healing when God doesn't heal. And two, his voice is healed mid-clip. And you'll see his response to that. So watch this video.
I came across this, I don't know, several months ago, and I've just been sitting on it thinking, we've got to share this at some point, and I felt like this morning was the morning to share it. The thing that I find interesting about Dwayne's message here is that here's a guy who's prayed for healing, and it's not happened. He's teaching on healing, and his faith has not wavered, even though God has not healed him. And in the midst of his speaking of the graciousness of God and that he does not expect God's graciousness to be defined by healing of his voice, his voice breaks free. <laughs> and his response, I don't know, we can analyze it, but I really think it's, a, it's worship. It's just worship. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine in that moment what that must have been like. But I can tell you that when you are in a time of struggle and personal pain, God is always gracious. And there are times that we, through persistent prayer, God will grant our petitions. But just like he demonstrated before his voice began to free, Our expectation of God loving us is not dependent on that healing because God's ultimate healing is beyond our physical bodies and it is about our souls. And even though we struggle within this world and many people are struggling within this world today and many of you in this room may be struggling right now at this moment, God's grace may or may not be to heal you from the circumstances, the physical ailments or whatever that you're dealing with. But what he is calling us to is to recognize his goodness and that we will be healed one day, ultimately. At the end of the service, we're going to have lunch, and we're going to talk about Luba. And one, I, I mean, Luba was a Russian woman. I don't know. I've known two of those, really. Uh, well, four, two young women and uh, two adult women, all in the Murphy family. And when she had her diagnosis several months ago that said, Um, You need to get your affairs in order and hospice is going to be called in. She said no (laughs) and decided to start treatment. And I I told Josh, well, she was just about to to convince me that I need to not listen to my doctors anymore. And ultimately, that's not how it went for her. But she is a believer and she is healed. 
Now, when we're called to persistent prayer, we're called to consistently put our object of faith in Christ, not in anything else. And what Jesus is saying is, when I come and no one's expecting it, but then in that moment, have you demonstrated that you have persistently made me the object of your faith? But I think what this clip also shows us is that God does still perform miracles as well. And there's nothing wrong when you're struggling to ask in a persistent prayer for healing. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no lack of faith in that. And in fact, there's an incredible encounter with with Jesus and a government official who he says, would you come and heal my child? And he says, you don't even have to come. If you just say the word, I, I know it will happen. And he said, your faith has made her well. So as we pray and as we persistently pray, understand that God wants to do something significant in our everyday life that's about us being with him. If you're hurting, understand that prayer is a balm for incredible pain because that is the presence of Jesus that you get to be with. You get to just commune with him. It does not require a worship service or a crowd of people, but he wants to commune with you on a regular basis. And one of the ways that we can get through the hardship of this life is that we are constantly in his presence through prayer. I think this is an incredibly powerful parable when we understand the context in which he's teaching because it throws our understanding of what it looks like to live life following Jesus. It completely throws that out and makes us be faced with something different. And what he is saying over and over in this these few verses is be prepared and be persistently with me. And you're going to be tempted to eat and drink and build and plan and tear down and build back and go about your daily lives and go to work and come home and do whatever you got to do at home and your relationships and your social calendar and the ball games, although Tennessee fans are less concerned with that this season. But you're going to be, your tendency is going to be to, to let those be the thing that occupy all your time. And that means you're not persistently in the presence of God. And that's what he's looking for. So I want to encourage you in a couple of ways. Number one, life's good for you. Everything's happy. You're doing fine. That is a dangerous place to be in your faith. Now, praise God for it. Worship God for it. Do not get caught up in how good life is and that you forget the one who has given you this life. Second group. You're struggling. This is a hard day. It's a hard week. It's a hard month. It's a hard year. It's a hard decade. Whatever. God is asking you to trust him, to let him be the object of your faith, the object of your hope, the one who's going to be with you and is going to take care of you. He, he's the one who's saying, even if I don't fix this problem in this life, the next one is going to be unbelievable. I'm healing you of your sinfulness. I'm healing you of your brokenness with me. I'm healing you of living life without purpose, without me, with no hope of anywhere of it going anywhere. He's saying, I have done that for you. I've taken care of that. It's over. It's settled. It is finished. For those of you who are praying for healing, I may just encourage you. Jesus is saying, continue. Continue to pray for healing. It may be that God's going to heal just like he healed Dwayne Miller. It may be that God is going to do something else as a result of your struggle. Maintain that faith. Trust that God is still there. He is still with you. This has been a difficult week for some and all that's in the news. There's silver linings to everything. I found it interesting that CNN did a story that the... that the sexual assault hotline this week experienced a 201% increase in calls during all that's going on in the news. Now, whatever you think about what's going on this week, that's good. That's a good thing. That's, that's repressed oppression taking a step for freedom. That's good. And in those things, God cares. And God is with us. God is with them. 
I want to encourage you that as we close this down, I want to encourage you to start right in this moment to pray. We've got some folks that are praying in the back if you'd like somebody to pray with you. If you want to come up here and pray, you can pray. If you want to pray right where you are, you can do that. Persistent prayer. It doesn't mean that as you walk out this door, you now have to figure out how to be the best prayer there ever was. It just means you need to start. You just need to start. Start praying. Start reaching out to him. Making him the object of your faith every day, regularly throughout the day. If you're hurting, God is a big boy or girl. We don't really know. He's a big God, right? Scripture uses pronouns in both ways for him. If you go back to the original Greek and Hebrew, you'll find God's described as a man and a woman. That'll mess with some of your theologies in the room. It kind of supersedes all that. If you're upset with God because you're going through significant pain, guess what? God can handle it. I found it freeing to realize I could disagree with God. It didn't make me right, and it did not make him wrong, and it did not help my situation. But he didn't shun me and throw me out because I disagreed with him. He just said, you'll come around. And I always do. Spend a life of persistent prayer. And recognize the words of Jesus. They cut right to our hearts today. I just want you to know I love you guys. And whatever is going on in your lives, God is that Father who wants to be there to speedily come to your aid. His love is overwhelming and enduring. And He will be with you. Whether we're walking through the pastures or through the valley of the shadow of death. He is with you. Would you pray with me, Father? God, I thank you for your love and grace. I thank you for the testimony of this pastor who had to give up his career, had to give up his love, had to give up the thing that you had called him to, and yet, in the midst of his pain and suffering, teaches us today. Pray for those in this room and they're hurting. And this week, they're hurting especially because the events of this week are are hitting very close to home for them. And God, I, I pray that your presence would not only be with them, that your love for them would be overwhelming and felt. I know it's overwhelming. I pray that they feel that overwhelming love. Father, I pray that You would help us to see you as the object of our faith, of our life, of our hopes and our dreams. And I thank you that not only have you come, but you're coming back for us. I thank you that I don't have to fear that because I know that I will be with you forever. And I pray that for all those in this room. Father, help us to not only follow you faithfully, but to recognize you are the treasure, the ultimate treasure that we can have. And it is an honor to spend time with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.